Okay, I'm showing 7 o'clock, so we'll get started. Good morning. My name is Bob Battle, and I'm an extension field crops educator in the Thumb. Our specialist this morning is Kurt Steinke. Kurt is a soil fertility specialist at MSU. He'll be talking to us about early season soil fertility. I just want to let everyone know that if you have any questions during the presentation, there is a chat function screen. Feel free to type your question in there. We'll turn things over to Kurt. Thanks, Bob. Uh, do I just have to hit the uh, start video button or? No, just start, go ahead and talk. All right. Kurt, you actually have to share your screen. All right. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody uh, here this morning. We're going to go over a couple of uh, quick uh, fertility items. Uh, given the, the recent weather we've had, we've probably had a few few concerns. You know, the question that uh, I tend to get uh, this time of year, and I've gotten a lot already this year, is uh, am I already too late with my nitrogen? Given that today is May 9th, some of us think we're, we're quite behind. You know, the answer is absolutely not. Uh, when you look at uh, where we are, you know, some delays that we've had so far probably uh, are a good thing. Uh, many of us probably still have uh, our seed still sitting in the shop, probably in the bag. Um, so we're, we're not the only ones. Some of the I-states are pretty far behind also. So, you know, if you try to look at this as a glass half full scenario, uh, you know, we, we, we may have a little less risk of end loss since we've missed some of these uh, wet conditions early in the season. Um, so we might miss some of that denitrification, some of those leaching end losses that we normally see with some of our early end applications. Uh, we've all seen some uh, uh, pooling standing water uh, out and about uh, through many of the fields that we've seen. So not necessarily a bad thing to, to be in the position that we're at. And the other thing we need to remember is, you know, when you look at end uptake by growth stage, we see very, very little and uptake early in the season. So you can look at some of the, the uh, icons I have here. Between emergence and V2, you're looking at about 3% of your total end uptake in, uh, in the corn crop. V2 to V6, about 7%. It's not till we get to that V6, V10 scenario that we get about 18% of our end uptake during that time. So as you go along there, you can see that V10 to V14, about a third of our end gets taken up. But one thing to remember is, we want to have our end in the ground, solubilized, and that uh, corn root, especially being able to uptake that end at that time, not necessarily apply the bulk of our end at that time. The other thing you'll notice with uh, the little uh, graph uh, that I have displayed here is, you know, we can look at the, these uptake uh, amounts by growth stage. But the big thing is a lot of this would be driven by growing degree days also. And that's one thing we really haven't accumulated much yet this spring. So we're not necessarily that far behind. And if you look at the, the, the long-term forecast, the GDDs might be a little slow accumulating here over the next couple of weeks. The other thing to remember here is that usually about 30 to 50 units of N near planting time or at planting time, whether it's uh, pre-plant incorporated, uh, pre-applied or even something like a two-by-two two, usually perform quite similar, in many cases better, than everything applied pre-plant. Um, so just because you don't have any N or all of your N out yet isn't necessarily a bad thing. 
the next question that usually comes up is starter or no starter. Uh, should I or should I not use starter fertilizer? So to set the table here a little bit, when you look at what starter fertilizer is, most of us probably remember that it's fertilizer applied near the seed at planting time. There's a couple advantages to using a starter fertilizer. One being uh, stimulate early plant growth. Okay, we, we've seen this quite often. If you look at the photo here to the right, that's actually a sugar beet crop. On the right hand of that photo, those sugar beets got 40 units of N in a two by two. On the left side of this photo, those sugar beets did not receive any N in a two by two. Uh, so you can see given whether it's optimal or suboptimal conditions, these plants sitting over, over on the right typically will always stay ahead of those plants sitting on the left, regardless of management from this point going forward. So it does stimulate early plant growth. That does not necessarily mean it's going to result in a yield response, however. Because we do see some of this uh, early plant growth, it can aid in weed control. Um, with uh, uh, row closure earlier with some uh, uh, shading of the row. Can also alter some tassel and pollination timing. Uh, so typically starter may move up or uh, 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 cause that plant to hit uh, the R stages a couple days sooner and then uh, pollinate a little bit sooner. That could be a benefit, that could be a negative, that often depends on soil moisture at both tassel and pollination timing. We know band placement tends to be very efficient. Why? Because you place that fertilizer where it has a very high probability of root contact as compared to some of our broadcast applications. The other th items to think about, micronutrients. If you know you are going to need a micronutrient, um, perhaps it's due to a micronutrient deficiency that you saw in that area of the field last year. Um, or if you know you need phosphorus, placing both those uh, uh, phosphorus and micros uh, in a band at planting time does minimize fixation and can maximize plant uptake. The other idea, again, with nitrogen applied in a starter is it can improve the uptake of other nutrients. Nitrogen can stimulate both root growth and above ground growth. Uh, so the bigger root mass you have, you can stimulate the uptake of P, K, uh, magnesium, manganese, et cetera, on down the line. The other item uh, to consider with regards to starter would be the last one listed there, and that'd be trying to ensure against the unknown. And what that unknown is, is probably what most of us are going to be experiencing here most of today, is rainfall. And we don't know uh, what type of rainfall variability uh, we will have this year. You can see the numbers listed there. Uh, for Lansing, April 2019, we had about 2.9 inches. Very similar to 2016, that's good news for our wheat crop. But you can see May and June, we just don't know what is going to happen. We have an equal chance, if we look over the last 12 or 13 years, of having excessively dry conditions, excessively wet and, and or uh, a, a fairly normal uh, May and or June uh, rainfall conditions. So that's one thing we don't know and we can kind of ensure against some of that uh, by setting up that plant to do well mid-season. Now, are there disadvantages to using starter? Absolutely. Uh, when you start thinking about a two-by-two -two application or a subsurface banded application, we do bring more soil to the surface. So if you are in a higher clay type soil, uh, many of, of what we tend to experience up towards the thumb region, uh, such as our sugar beet region, 
we do tend to bring more so soil to the surface, which can make planting conditions a little uh, bit tougher for that seed to soil contact. Uh, the other thing is with that starter, we might have to delay planting a couple days due to that soil moisture. Oftentimes, uh, when it gets into that sticky uh, type of scenario, uh, we tend to have to wait a couple days for uh, the, the just beneath the soil surface to dry out. Um, and so it might delay planting from anywhere from two to four days as compared to not using a starter application because we don't want to get those nozzles plugged. And uh, another disadvantage would probably be speed. It will slow you down. All right, that, that's uh, uh, pretty well known. But again, you want to use your nutrients efficiently. The last item here is what is your side dress preference? Is it early or is it late? Because this may also dictate whether you use a starter or choose not to use a starter fertilizer. Here's a picture uh, looking at a V11 citrus timing from a couple years back. Picture on the left, you can see had about seven units of N in furrow with 133 units at V4 citrus. Picture on the right had seven units in furrow with 133 units of N at V11 citrus. So notice at the bottom of the picture on the right where you see the red arrow, you can already see some leaf firing occurring, which is not what we wanna see in mid to late June on a growing corn crop. So if you're going to go with a later citrus application, a late vegetative, closer to an R stage citrus application timing, you may want to go with a starter fertilizer to try to get that crop to that point in time. You have to give that crop enough fuel to get to that citrus timing, especially if you go with a later citrus application. The last thing here is you wanna set that plant up to capitalize on June or July growing conditions. What do I mean by that? Here's a picture from 2018, some corn grain yield observations. Two cobs on the left, you see can uh, had about 145 units of N uh, side dressed at V4. Two cobs on the right had 40 units of N in a two by two with 105 units of N at V4. So same total N rate. What was the difference? Cobs on the right that you can see here had that 40 units of N in a two by two at starter time which resulted in, we're looking there at about a 25 to 30 bushel difference. Why? If you remember from last year, June and July were quite dry, especially in South Central Michigan. We had about two inches of rain total for the months of June and July. So in about an eight, eight, nine week period, we had two inches total. When you look at that uh, uh, same type of timing, uh, but uh, different side dress timing, two cobs on the left in this photo had about 145 units of N applied at V12. Two cobs on the right had that starter, that 40 units of N in a two by two with those 105 units also at V12. And there again, you're looking at close to a 25 bushel difference just by using that starter fertilizer application. Again, that those dry conditions in June and July really uh, uh, hampered uh, the development of that corn crop. So where we had that starter fertilizer, that plant was set up to do well uh, regardless of that citrus application timing. Now, it may not always turn out that way. There's a big difference between an early season drought, a mid-season drought, and a late season drought. So that's also something to consider. So when you look at starter end implications, big thing with corn is we have to satisfy those early corn end requirements. We know that yield expression is influenced early. We have to have sufficient end until that citrus timing. Whatever citrus timing you choose, 
you have to give that crop enough fuel or enough gas in the tank to get to that side dress timing. We know that two by two applied end or subsurface applied end at planting has continued to offer fairly consistent grain yield response. It offers that plant that start right capacity to capitalize on those mid and late season environmental conditions. But again, I'll emphasize a positive grain yield response will not always occur. It's going to depend on that precipitation, uh, especially about that June and July period. We know 40 units of N in a two by two as starter on corn is not sufficient to delay your side dress to V11. So if you want to go with a later vegetative or closer to uh, our stage side dress application timing, you need a rate above that 40 units of N in that two by two. I'm gonna change gears here quickly a little bit. We're talking a little bit about phosphorus. You know, I kind of feel like an old fuddy-duddy here putting don't guess soil test up there. Uh, that goes back to the, the mid to late 80s, early 90s, but it, it, it rings true more now than ever. Uh, should you or should you not use phosphorus in your starter fertilizer, get a soil test to determine whether you need to apply or not. So we wrapped up some on-farm field trials over the last three years, looking at soil test phosphorus. Uh, this graph looks at soil test phosphorus as your relative corn grain yield. So again, your soil test phosphorus is along that bottom axis. Your relative grain yield is along that y-axis, along the left-hand margin of that graph. And what we found is when we, when we mapped this out, uh, our, our critical value when you fit the curve ended up to be about 16 parts per million. Okay, very close to the 15 parts per million that we've always used. So no, things have not changed dramatically, even if when you look at uh, newer uh, germplasm or newer cultivars, newer hybrids that are out there in combination with newer cultural practices, et cetera, soils don't change very quickly. Uh, so you wanna know what those critical values are. And so this is always a good reminder to look at uh, should you or should you not apply phosphorus to your corn, soybean, and wheat. Remember your Bray, P1 critical levels for corn, soybean, and wheat will be 15, 15, and 25 parts per million. So what that critical level represents is about 95 to 97% of your yield goal, all right? So outside of that, you're only looking at about anywhere from three to 5% of your yield variation. So if you're below that 15, 15, or 25 for your corn, soybean, and wheat, you're much more likely to see a positive uh, response. It's not necessarily guaranteed. Uh, and if you're above, how much above are you? If you're in this 15 to 30 range for corn and soybean, that sufficiency zone, that adequate zone, or that maintenance range, you might want to apply uh, maintenance application. Uh, if you're in this 30 to 40 parts per million drawdown zone for corn and soybean, it'd be 25 to 40 uh, parts per million uh, uh, for wheat or 40 to 50 for wheat, uh, you might want to apply about one half a crop removal. And with corn and soybean, when you get above 40 parts per million, which many of our fields are, you're really not likely to see a yield response to a FOSS application. You might see a plant response, not necessarily a yield response. So again, when you talk about FOSS, you wanna look at that soil test. You wanna use the correct soil test. So if you're in a higher pH scenario, I'd say probably 7.4, 7.5 and above. Uh, and tend to have a high calcium content, make sure you go with perhaps the Olson analysis, not necessarily the Bray or the Malik. You want to look at that report. Okay, I think uh, the, the 
average is about 50% or under of our growers actually look at their soil test report. So look at that report, look at what it says, understand and interpret that report, know who is interpreting that report. Uh, some labs, some consultants have different interpretations, which may not necessarily equate into whether you should or should not apply uh, the phosphorus fertilizer. And we also know that there's no relationship between soil test FOSS and grain yield. We haven't seen that in Michigan, we haven't seen that in Ohio, and we haven't seen that in Indiana. Another good point is know your realistic yield potential. Okay, remember your yield potential, your realistic yield potential should be achievable in one out of every two years. If you haven't achieved that, or if your yield potential is set too high, you will always over apply nutrients. And that's something we do not want to do. Your P applications cannot be based simply on uptake and removal. They have to be based on that soil test and the likelihood of seeing a response. So at the end of the day, remember that phosphorus is still a critical part of a balanced crop nutrition program. But we really wanna take a look at that soil test and whether we should or should not be applying phosphorus to our production ag acres. The last thing we're gonna hit on here is sulfur. So we know we have less sulfur today than previous years. It's not an area I would like to see eliminated um, or that you should eliminate from your uh, uh, crop nutrition program. All right, we tend to see S deficiencies more now than we ever have. But remember, sulfur is not nitrogen. We do not need sulfur in the same quantities that we need nitrogen. So when you start looking at corn, we're probably in this 20 to 40 pounds to the acre wheelhouse. Soybeans, probably 15 to 25. Wheat, probably in about that 20 to 30 pounds of sulfur to the acre range. We are tending to see a few more non-responsive sites. That's simply due to uh, more continuous uh, sulfur applications. So take a look at your starter program, should you, should you not apply uh, sulfur. Again, rotations and maturity lengths will matter. We tend are to see less likely of a response in soybean. Uh, they have seen more positive responses to sulfur on soybean uh, as you move south uh, through Indiana uh, especially. But we tend to see a little bit more of a diverse crop rotation in Michigan than we do uh, some of the states south of our border. Uh, and some of the, the crops in our rotation tend to be a little bit more as responsive. So if you apply sulfur to your corn and our wheat crops, you may not necessarily see a response in that soybean crop. And we also tend to see a little bit shorter maturity lengths uh, or maturity groups uh, in Michigan with regard to our soybean. And that could be another reason we do not see responses as frequently in soybean as we do in corn and wheat. The other thing to think about if you're considering S in your starter program uh, is do you want early S or do you want late S to stick around for that plant or do you want both? So as we plant earlier in springtime, we tend to encounter S deficient conditions for a longer period of time. At the same time, when you start looking at late season uptake, whether it's in corn and soybean, predominantly here looking at after R4 or after R5, we know a lot of that late season S comes from the soil. So that may dictate uh, what type of S source you use. So there's multiple S sources out there nowadays. Some of those have all uh, soluble sulfate sulfur. Some have a combination, maybe half uh, sulfate sulfur, which is immediately available, and half uh, elemental S that can become available as time goes on. So that's something to think about, whether you want early availability or late or both. A couple resources to consider as we wrap up here. 
soil.msu.edu is our website for the soil fertility program. Lots of good information on there. We have a couple videos posted on there that'll uh, uh, may offer some insight, especially with corn, on how to use certain models to predict your corn end rates, early and late citrus timings in corn, some early season corn nest strategies. We also have a couple articles on there uh, that were posted uh, more recently, looking at pre-plant in season end combinations, corn end guidelines, and focusing on the right rate strategies for corn citrus nitrogen placement and starting right to finish well how to get that corn plant off to a good start so with that i will wrap up i know there's a link listed on that slide at the top if you want to go out and fill out uh, the online evaluation survey but other than that i will wrap up and appreciate your time this morning thank you thanks kurt uh are we ready to turn things over to jeff uh, jeff andreessen will provide this morning's weather outlook Thanks, Bob. And let me try and bring my screen up. Bob, do you see my screen yet? Yes, I do. Thanks. Well, we'll we'll jump right into uh, to weather and uh, start with a scene that's been, uh, I think it's Kurt mentioned, uh, all too familiar here over the last several weeks. But as we look ahead here, uh, there are some changes in the forecast. Some some things, re the more they, they change, the more they stay the same. Uh, we are looking at a cool pattern here over the next couple of weeks. So that's that's going to be a continuation of where we've been. But there are some changes with regard to precip. And I'll, I'll get to those here uh, in a second. One thing I want to start with as we look at the last several weeks, which is which is interesting, and I think it brings a little bit of perspective as to, to how this season has begun. But if uh, three panels here, these are looking at mean temperatures uh, here over the last 30 days. So back to uh, early April through the earlier part of this week. And if we look at our departures, and if you ask anybody uh, in Michigan or the Great Lakes region for that matter, it, you think it's been above or below normal, uh, I think probably 95 or more percent would, would probably say uh, below normal or cooler than normal. And indeed, if you look at the actual averages, that's what this map here on the left or the chart here on the left suggests. Uh, with uh, actually, if you look at the statistics, the southern part of the state, and as you go south into the Ohio Valley, you can actually see it was uh, a little bit warmer than normal, which is which is somewhat uh, uh, surprising, but cooler as you go to the north and west. Now, uh, it's that's not the end of the story. The reason I brought this up is because if we actually look at the minimum temperatures at the same time frame, we see that those have actually been very close and even a little bit milder or warmer than normal uh, over the same time frame. But the real story here is on the far right, our panel here, looking at our maximum temperatures. So our daytime temperatures have been significantly cooler than normal. And most of, the, most of what we've experienced here, certainly in terms of degree days, and I'll show that next, uh, is a result of cool daytime temperatures. And this has many impacts, physical links with, uh, with what, well, what's been observed uh, with degree days, certainly also with soil temperatures. And, and when we don't get the uh, the heating of the ground at the top, uh, our soil temperatures lag behind normal. We, I saw, I showed an image of that last week, and it really hasn't changed that much. Many soil temperatures in many parts of the state still remaining uh, in the 40s. So they're, they're behind normal. It's been, and one of the reasons that has also happened is the frequency of precipitation. And with more clouds, we have less sunshine. And again, all of these, these factors are related, uh, pointing to a, uh, well, a delay or uh, a slower than normal start. I mentioned degree day totals here. Uh, these are the actual base 50 totals. This is beginning March 1, so we're really looking at, at overwintering crops here or, or perennials. 
uh, from, uh, from the beginning of March through, uh, through Monday. And here's some of the totals on the left. But I think the real, the real news again, and, and a not su a surprising news on the right, these are departures from normal. Uh, virtually all of the state and the region, for that matter, are lagging behind normal. And, and relative to last week and the week before that, we've actually lost a little bit of ground. So most of the state right now is a full week. Uh, in, in northern parts of the state, uh, two calendar weeks behind normal or where we typically are at this time of the year. And again, this relates back to those cool daytime temperatures, especially uh, not, a, not a big surprise there for anyone. But uh, the, other, the other part of this, the glass half full side, is that if we were to have a warmer than normal week or two, uh, we could eat into these uh, deficits very, very quickly. Uh, it wouldn't take much time. Well, let's look at where we are. Uh, look ahead here. These are current forecast or current uh, weather conditions across the U.S. And the big uh, the big story is another area of low pressure, and there's just been a, a literally a parade or a series of these systems moving through the central part of the country over the last couple of months. And this is the the latest uh, in in that series. Uh, currently located over southern and eastern parts of Wisconsin. You can also see here a warm front uh, trailing off to the east uh, for at least for large portions of the lower peninsula. That's going to make a difference in temperatures today. We should see, especially if we can break through the clouds uh, later on this afternoon, we should see many uh, locations in the, especially the southern and central lower, make it up to 70 degrees. Uh, and with that, I will say this is going to be the warmest day of the upcoming week because uh, we'll be looking at a downward trend after today. As the cold front here on the back of the system uh, moves through, that'll, that'll begin later on this afternoon and into tonight, and, and there's much colder, uh, much colder weather on the north and west side of this. Uh, we don't have to go too far to, uh, to see an example of that. This morning, it's only in the low and mid-30s uh, in portions of uh, the central and western upper peninsula. And, uh, well, again, it's, it's, it's May. It's almost the uh, beginning of the second week of May, and we're, we're talking about frozen precipitation. We've actually got some snow, uh, at least uh, mixed. Some cases it's all snow falling here, uh, and there are some, uh, some accumulations expected here during the day as this weather system uh, moves from uh, southwest to northeast across the region. But it will clear the state by tomorrow. We'll show that. Uh, one, there is one positive aspect to this, again, all the, given all the delays over the last week or two. I've inset the radar uh, shot here across the Great Lakes region. This is from about 6.30 this morning. And it, with this particular weather system, uh, most of the moisture has gone farther to the north than had been previously forecast. And so large portions of the southeastern lower have been generally missed, uh, had maybe had some few sprinkles. That's even true here in the East Lansing area. But the rainfall with this system was not as heavy uh, in general as had been earlier uh, advertised or suggested by the forecast guidance. That's always a good thing. But there are areas of the state, certainly in the northern part of the lower and into the upper peninsula that have had heavy rain with this already over an inch and more uh, is expected to fall here over the next uh, 12 hours or so. So as we I'll loop through here to tomorrow morning, you can see here's the low pressure system now up and uh, all the way almost into Quebec. And uh, all of the precipitation with this has cleared off to our east. There will be a few lingering showers across far eastern parts of the state probably tomorrow morning possible. But by and large, most of the state will be uh, either clearing or clouds with, uh, with reduced cloudiness during the day and significantly cooler conditions than, uh, than was the case today. Tomorrow, most of high temperatures uh, dropping at least 
20, if not 30 degrees, uh, high temperatures only in the 40s north and 50s in the south with a brisk uh, west to, to northwest wind behind here. But again, it will be, it will be drier. Uh, the, next, the next weather story to talk about is this uh, area of high pressure, which is out over the central plains. That will move to the Great Lakes region by late tomorrow night and Saturday and set the stage by Saturday morning. As you can see, it's centered here right over the lower peninsula. We will see probably, given cold enough uh, uh, temperatures with this air mass, the, at least the threat of or possibility of frost and freezing temperatures in many parts of the state. I think right now that will generally, we, freezing temperatures probably will be confined to the upper peninsula and the interior northern lower peninsula. I don't think we'll see a widespread freeze, but frost certainly will be possible. It will be uh, a mostly clear, calm uh, type of, uh, of morning. And uh, along with that, we're getting statistically, uh, at least for central parts of the state, we're pretty close to the average last 32 degree Fahrenheit reading of the spring. Uh, we've already passed that in the southwest and southeast corners, and, and again, typically we see frost and freezing temperatures in northern parts of the state well into the latter part of May. So that's not too unusual, but the threat is there. Note that it will be a dry day across the state. After today and into to early tomorrow, the next chance for any precipitation, and this is, this is really the theme the rest of the, of the talk here, uh, we're looking at a drier, a gradually drying pattern, and I, I think that's a, a positive thing to note given where we are in the season. The weather system out here over the uh, prairie provinces in Canada will drop down into the, uh, the Great Lakes region late Saturday, but more likely Sunday into Monday. That's the next chance for any precipitation, but in contrast to what we've experienced over much of the last two weeks or so, it will only be scattered. I think most many areas will remain dry or not see any precipitation at all. Uh, the next real, I think the next greatest threat of significant precip probably not coming until at least uh, Wednesday or possibly Thursday of next week. And, and in honesty, uh, the jury's still out a little bit on this one, but that one could also be relatively scattered. Uh, the, the forecast guidance is distinctly different than it has been over the last week or two in terms of the frequency of precipitation, which has been very, very high, as, as everyone knows. Uh, in terms of what's going to be in the rain gauge here by next Thursday morning, uh, looking at the projections, most of the state, uh, a half an inch or less, actually in the western part of the state, less than a quarter of an inch, and most of that is coming today. Uh, so as we, get a, we look ahead, it is not, uh, at least the, the guidance, weather guidance here is suggesting uh, probably below normal precipitation totals for next, most of the next week. And much of what you see here, especially the uh, half inch amounts plus, will be occurring later today. And that's when we'll, uh, there will be, by the way, with the, the system today, there will be two, I think, two major threats of precip. One occurring right now as we speak over the next hour or two. The second will come later this afternoon and this evening as the cold front makes its way through. That will especially be true for the eastern uh, lower peninsula. We probably will see some thunderstorms there. They're not expected to be severe, but some of them could be strong with a little with some gusty winds, maybe a little bit of small hail. But most of the severe weather with this or rough weather with this will probably be to the, the south of Michigan. But then ahead, probably less precip than what we've been dealing with. And that's uh, uh, finishing up here, looking ahead into the mid-range, a very strong signal here. We look at the jet stream flow. The big change from last week, it's a similar pattern with the ridging out over the western part of North America and then troughing over the east. The big change from last week is the troughing here over the east is stronger than it's been uh, over the last week or two. Uh, we have northwest flow aloft, and that means that we're going to see more Canadian origin air into the Great Lakes region, into Michigan, 
And uh, with that, below normal mean temperature is a very, very good bet. The 8 to 14 day outlook is almost a carbon copy of this one. But here's the change. Here's the big change and uh, one which, that's certainly worth noting. As we look down here at precipitation totals, uh, with that northwesterly flow, the, the good news is, is that this active storm track that we've been dealing with and, and experiencing here recently will be suppressed to the south, down over the Ohio Valley or even further south than that. And as a result of this, uh, we've, you can see the uh, brown areas here are B. That is below normal precipitation expected. Uh, again, that is true for much of the next two weeks and possibly even longer than that. So looking at a cooler and drier than normal type of weather pattern here uh, as we, we summarize, Today will be, for many areas, will be the most significant rain we see in at least a week. That's, a, that's certainly a good sign. A little bit of snow possible up in the far north. Uh, fair and, mostly fair and cooler this weekend, although there are some scattered showers possible uh, at, in places on Sunday and Monday, but it won't be a widespread rainfall. And then, again, frost and freeze conditions are possible, especially in northern parts of the state on Sunday. Next week, the next chance for... Uh, anything significant, I think probably Wednesday or Thursday of next week, but uh, significantly, even though cooler than normal, will be at least uh, three or four degrees below normal or, or more than where we typically are. Most areas will see highs in the 60s and lows in the, in the 40s or even some 30s north, but fewer chances for precipitation. And that's, uh, I think that's important. This is likely to continue on into the second half of May. The guidance uh, this morning was looking at does suggest some moderation in temperatures as we get into the latter part of May, but overall it's not, uh, not going to be turning the key for an instant change uh, in field work opportunities, but it certainly does suggest some improvement here, uh, with gradual but steady improvement over time. And with that, I'll, I'll finish up and see if anyone has any questions. Uh, thanks, Bob. Thank you, Jeff. I just wanted to draw everybody's attention to um, Chris Tafanzo has is, is, uh, put a, a note about uh, some breaking news, uh, European corn borer resistance to Cry1F Herculex 1 ET is confirmed in multiple locations in Canada, and she'll talk about that uh, more in May, if everybody uh, has seen that. Um, if not, I'll turn, I'll share my screen. Uh, so everybody can take our uh, online evaluation survey. Uh, if everybody would do that, um, that would be appreciated. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, stop the presentation now. Thank you, everybody, for uh, your attention today.